So about five years ago, um, my partner and I bought a sailboat and decided to move on to it, to live on our sailboat in the San Francisco Bay Area. And the reason we did this, there were actually many reasons we did this. One, it was an affordable option in the area. It also um, allowed us to live a much more simple life. Living on a sailboat is like living in a a mini house or uh, a trailer or uh, an RV, something like that. Uh, And we were... And we have been very dedicated to this lifestyle. It suited us. It suits us very well. Uh, Both of us being meditation practitioners and feeling the sweetness of renunciation, the sweetness of simplicity, and wanting to carry that more and more into our life in a a deep way. So this um, this was our way. And then as we became more and more comfortable with the idea of living on the sailboat, we started to think about what would it be like to sail out the Golden Gate Bridge and turn left. (laughs) And um, so we did. (laughs) Uh, Just this past summer, late summer, I think it was mid August, uh, we did exactly that at 4 a.m. in the morning. (laughs) We took our, this was not spontaneous, this was after a lot of planning. Um, But ourself, we had two crew members, and then our year and a half year old son, uh, who I think some of you have seen down the hill, he's here with me. We all went on this great adventure together. We're still on it, actually. made our way um, out into the Pacific and uh, down. Now we're in Mexico and we're now in the Sea of Cortez. And um, I don't know that we're making our home there, but we're in our home. (laughs) And it's been a really incredible journey so far. I'll just tell you a little bit, and it's all relative to what I want to speak to this evening Uh, There's nothing like uh, waking up and seeing uh, a sunrise just after it feels like seeing the sunset (laughs) and being out uh, on the ocean and not seeing land in any direction, just just surrounded by water and the peacefulness that that brings. Some of you, that might bring up fear. (laughs) For me, that brings a lot of peace. Uh, and it is, it's peaceful, it's really quiet out there. And the marine life is really incredible. The whales have been thriving off the coast of California and actually down the coast uh, to Baja for, for a number of years now. And so we saw a lot of evidence of that. Uh, a lot of dolphins and sea lions and um, schools of large fish. They're really beautiful out there. No connection to, to cellular or Wi-Fi. No distractions of any kind like that. Uh, it was just, just us. And it comes with the grittiness of being in nature too. There was a lot of romantic ideas of being in nature that, um, you know, that, that peacefulness and that connectedness. But it also includes really hard days of... Uh, uh, difficult seas and swells and um, not enough wind, too much wind. Uh, we've seen, seen all of that. Um, I've had days where uh, all three of us have been seasick and you just have to keep going. Uh, there's a grittiness to being in nature and, and living in this way. Um, so the ups are really up and the downs are really down. But it's right in your face. There's no escape from any of that. There's no distractions. They're just not available. So it forces us to be present with it. And there's some days where I'm so grateful for that. 
and other days where I'm not that grateful for that. And I'm thinking, what have I done? And so much of this experience uh, really mirrors, I think, the experience of being on retreat. Uh, You come here and you've renounced so much. You're not connected to the outside world the way that you were before. Uh, You've left friends and family and and your jobs and school, um, your pets, uh, your routine. All of that has been set aside for a little while. You've left the billboards and the uh, clickbait <laughs> on, your, on the websites and on your phone and the news. All of this that brings in um, just so much input. So much of it uh, also bringing us outside of ourselves. Here you come and you're asked to really sit with the grittiness of being alive. That's what we're doing here. We're really sitting with the grittiness of being alive. The amazing ups that that brings and the the incredible downs that that brings. But you're asked to be with all of it, that you sit with all of it. And that's what this journey has been like uh, for us going down the coast to Mexico. And it was very, um, it was very striking coming back. We came back uh, for Thanksgiving uh, to be with some family, and also for this retreat, uh, so that I could teach this retreat. And a friend of mine asked me, "What is it like to be back?" And I said, "Well, it's you know we haven't been gone that long. Um, it wasn't like a." a culture shock experience, but I said, there is something strange about being back. There's something I couldn't quite put my finger on. And as we we talked through it, I finally said, you know what it is? It's it's clutter. (laughs) There's so much clutter everywhere I look. There's just so much stuff and um, information and um, traffic and there's just so much and within that clutter there's there's um oh there's this distraction uh from myself it's so easy to be pulled outside of myself almost like this this fuzz of reception uh you know um like i just can't quite get a clear channel to myself. I have to really pull myself away and sit and practice to come back and reorganize and and let go of all that other excess. And so that was the initial experience, which is often the experience coming out of retreat. It's kind of like being bombarded by all this stuff that was always there. It's just we we kind of... We just haven't used it for a while. So all this is to say, um, this, this experience of being here on this retreat is very different from being outside of retreat. And we come here for many different reasons. Our own personal motivations for getting here are, are different. But in the end, the instructions are basically the same what we're doing here is basically the same. We're here to understand more deeply, to really get to know our mind and our heart and maybe let go of anything that's getting in the way of that. Rinpoche talked last night about the different fears. There were the three fears of um, death, people, and the mind. Remember that? And certainly, there is such fear of the mind. I think we really see that when we come and we sit. We're here to be with the mind, but are we really okay with what it produces and what we have to, to see 
and what we are exploring in our mind. Are we really truly fully to our core okay with that? Most likely not. Most likely we're encountering that fear and uh, that fear is connected to this experience of dukkha, this experience of suffering. Of course we're afraid of our suffering. Any, any mammal alive that is suffering is trying to push it away, right? That's our instinct. We feel suffering, we, we feel our discomfort, our agitation, our stress, um, all of our unwanted thoughts, we just want to get rid of it. We want to fix it. We want to get rid of it. We want to bring something else to distract ourselves from it. This is just the natural reaction of our, our humanness. This is our humanness at play. And yet here is this practice that's asking us to do the complete opposite of all of that. It's pretty radical. And so here we are with, with all the different forms of our mind and our heart, and some of it's really hard. Some of it is really um, steeped in dukkha. So I want to talk about how this dukkha, when it does arise, the different forms it might take, how we can recognize it, and then what we can do with it to really stay with it. Oftentimes I, when I teach, I talk about the importance of staying steady, with the difficult. How do we stay steady with it? Not flinch. Not be so um, repelled by it. So one of the main ways of not being repelled by it is to become interested in it and to know it. What is this dukkha? And Uh, The dukkha arises and visits us in many different ways, different forms. So I want to go through some of these forms. You know them. Some of you, uh, most of you know these forms. You've heard this before. Uh, We call them the hindrances. Um, These are uh, ways in which we find ourselves in these mind states that Um, are really sticky, hard to really see clearly what's going on. They, They push us around. They're kind of bullies. They end up being in charge if we're not careful. I have a feeling that you know these really well already inside this retreat and outside. The first one is desire. Dukkha arises as desire, this wanting mind, wanting something that isn't here, wanting things to be different. If only I had fill in the blank. I know there's been times where I've been on retreat where uh, I'm just so agitated and uncomfortable and my mind gets obsessed with trying to cushion that discomfort. Uh, And it comes in these funny forms of uh, just wearing um, my favorite sweater every day uh, for the retreat, just so that I can feel that little bit of comfort, or um, how much I put on my plate as I go through the lunch line, just all that comfort food, or um, even wrapping myself up in a shawl just to feel a little bit more comfortable. And we we get kind of obsessed of just finding these little ways. Sometimes they're not subtle ways. Maybe you're finding major ways (laughs) to find more and more comfort. And it's a lot of work. It's a lot of effort to keep bringing in this comfort, to pad our experience, to protect ourselves from the dukkha. But it's so natural. It's just what we do. So this desire comes up. The Buddha talks about just how uh, we nourish, um, just how we need nourishment uh, to survive. So do the hindrances. In order for these hindrances like desire to survive, it, it needs nourishment and we offer it that. And so uh, with 
with desire specifically, um, we we fuel it by obsessing, um, by looking outside of ourself for something better. Looking outside of ourself for something better. And so one of the ways in which that we can starve this particular hindrance is by staying with the difficult. It's not going outside of ourself and not trying to pad all of our dukkha, but to be able to stay steady with this difficult, whatever the challenge might be. And then coupled with desire is often aversion. I'm not sure I experience one separate from the other. And maybe you have this experience too, that when there's wanting in the mind, there's not wanting. I want this because I don't want this, right? So where uh, desire is kind of this motion, aversion is more like this. I don't want that here. Get rid of it. Uh, This shouldn't be happening. I don't want this to be happening. This is aversion. We can have aversion about our own internal experience, um, mind states that we're having. We don't want the restlessness. We don't want the physical discomforts. Um, Or it goes outside and we find aversion with, you know, the food or the way someone is walking or breathing. Um, or, you know, that the blankets are too scratchy or something like that. We start to, again, obsess about the things that just aren't quite right. And we feed it. Maybe you've noticed this. It starts maybe small, and then it just gets bigger and bigger. It's, it's like that uh, itch that you just can't scratch just is so obnoxious and it grows and grows. If we really take a moment to look at our annoyance of what we're not wanting here, oftentimes it's not really that big of a deal, but our mind makes it so big. It's just what it does. It's another way of actually protecting ourselves from really being with what is it that's uncomfortable. What's really underneath that aversion? Usually it's something like fear, uncertainty, um, insecurity. Lots of possibilities there. But we make it into something else, that, that little annoyance. So one of the ways to work with aversion is with metta. And you're learning that um, in the afternoons here. Our adversive, really hateful um, part of our mind, that hateful uh, habit of our mind. It has a hard time surviving when we bring in this care and this friendliness. And so when aversion arises, we can bring metta to the thing that we're adverse to. So if it's another person in the room, we can wish them metta and and change our mindset in that way. But another way to do it is to bring our metta right to the aversion itself. And so, in fact, if you are experiencing a lot of aversion so far on this retreat, maybe you're experiencing it right now. It's a wonderful practice to be able to identify just where that is in the body You know, is the tightness in the chest or the stomach or in the shoulders or the face. And know that you can hold that in a very gentle way with all that compassion and care. That aversion often feels really small. It's a real small sense of self within ourself. You know, this cranky, insecure part of ourself. Maybe it even feels kind of young. You know, like almost like an immature uh, 
teenager or uh, toddler um, having a tantrum in there. And so we can hold that part of ourselves with such tenderness, not needing to get rid of it, not needing to add to the aversion. Isn't that a trip? When we're really averse to something and all we want to do is push it away, can you imagine what that does? Of course you can, because we've all done it. But it's, it just builds this incredible, tense, tight, I don't like this aversion. I don't like that aversion. I don't. It just starts to stack up. That this is what we do. And so it's when we can turn towards it with this open heart, and hold it with tenderness, allowing it to be here. You don't have to push your aversion away. There's nothing wrong with it being here. It's really just part of the human experience that we're exploring, turning towards it with this tenderness. That is an antidote to aversion. And then we have our good friend, Sloth and Torpor, which is a kind of in an old-fashioned way of just saying uh, laziness, sleepiness. Disinterest is often uh, at the heart of, of uh, sloth and torpor. Our interest just goes flat. And, um, you know, here we are, we're, we're paying attention to our breath day in, day out. We're doing walking meditation. It's not a whole lot of... Um, there's not a lot of input, not as much as we're used to. You know, we're used to so much entertainment, constant, right? You know, all you have to do is pull out that phone the minute you're a little bit bored and you've got something to entertain you. And we don't have that here. We have our breath. We have these bodies. We do have the nature. But, you know, we... we our minds just aren't used to that little amount of entertainment. So we get bored, we get lazy, we get sleepy, we get dull. This is the hindrance of sloth and torpor. So understandable, isn't it? But what do we do with it? Do we beat ourselves up for it when it arises? Do we take it personal? Do we feel like we're not good meditators? Do we feel like this retreat is going to be like this the whole time. I'm just going to be sleepy the whole time. Do we compare ourselves to other people in the room? Do we judge others for their sloth and torpor? No, this is just part of the human experience that we're here to explore. And so one of the ways we can work with sloth and torpor, besides being more kind to ourselves when we do experience it, is to bring in some interest. How amazing can we make the breath in this body and the land around us, our senses, the sounds? You know, we take for granted that we're here on this earth in this very moment. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen Tomorrow, the next day, will we still be here? We really don't know. Our breath is so precious. It's the thing that lets us know that we're alive. Without it, we're not here. But we don't have that relationship necessarily to it. But we can cultivate a relationship to it in that way. Just feeling the sweetness of being here. Even with all that may be going on, I know that some of you are working with a lot of physical discomfort and some of you are working with a lot of mental discomfort. But even with all of that, the sweetness of being here, of being alive, of being here in the Dharma, being here in this hall, which is so incredible. Look up at this hall. What an amazing place that we get to be in at this point in time. And so when we don't lose track of that, when we can be really conscious of that, when each in-breath becomes fascinating and we don't want to miss it,
which when each out-breath brings this ah, release and relaxation that we can feel so grateful for. We don't want to miss any of it. Sloth and torpor, they don't have a lot of room to, uh, to exist when we are relating to our moment-to-moment in this way. And when that doesn't work, sloth and torpor becomes our object of interest. What is it like to be sleepy? What is this sleepy Buddha like right now? It's, again, just part of the human experience. We don't need to push it away. We can get right in there. Snuggle up with it. That's really what your body wants to do anyway. It just wants you to snuggle up with sloth and torpor. Get real cozy. Close your eyes and get to know what is it like to be this tired? What is it like to be so bored? What is it like to be really lazy? And just see, the mind is like this, the heart is like this, the body is like this. Oh, wow. That's interesting. And then it probably won't last very long because it is so interesting. So these are just a couple of ideas of working with such states. So then the opposite, I guess, of sloth and torpor, although oftentimes they also go hand in hand, you'll go from one to the other, is restlessness. Oh, this is such an uncomfortable hindrance. We feel it in our mind, we feel it in our bodies. We just can't quite sit still. Our mind just won't rest. It's so busy. It has so much to say and to tell us. And we don't really care. It's not that interesting, is it? And yet it just keeps going. Again, this is just the nature of our agitated mind. It's not personal. And of course, none of these states are something you would choose, right? You wouldn't choose restlessness. This is not something uh, that we have to take personal or feel bad about. It's just another human experience arising. Restlessness, though, is very uncomfortable. It takes a mind that can... um, somehow find ways to relax around the edges. So when all of this energy is happening within ourself, within our body and in our mind, seeing if on the periphery there's somewhere that we can rest, somewhere where we can hold it. So sometimes I I think of wisdom or compassion uh, being so much bigger and grander than, than me than this this self. And that it's the wisdom and the compassion that can hold all of that energy, all that restlessness. And then when I expand my mind in this way, allowing it to be uh, something bigger holding all of this, suddenly, you know, that restlessness has a little more space. It's not so agitated. I'm not fighting it with my aversion, trying to get rid of it and fix it and push it down. It's giving it a lot of space and permission, giving it a lot of care. And it might run for a while, but um, all of these states are impermanent. They come and they go. Maybe every set you come in and there's that restlessness. But maybe when you get up and you walk out and use the restroom, suddenly it's gone. It's so weird like that. It doesn't stick around. So being aware not only that you have the capacity to be there with it and hold it, but also that it's impermanent. All of these states are impermanent. This is one of the laws of the universe they're not going to stick around, even if we think they will, even if it feels like it's always happening. If you look close enough, it's changing. It's fluid. Our lives are fluid. Our experience of life is always in motion. There's nothing static about it. 
continuity of practice helps with restlessness. Really staying present as much as you can. So those moments where when you do walk out of the hall and you go to your room and you brush your teeth or you walk down to the dining hall or you're doing your yogi job, filling all of those moments with practice, with awareness, this helps a restless mind settle down. It kind of clues it in. Oh, this really is what we're doing here. We really are resting and settling down and paying attention. So that continuity helps a lot. Patience. Patience helps a lot. This is Sylvia Borstein. Patience is more the moment-to-moment adjustment to unpleasant circumstances, done in knowledge that they cannot be other. And this is wisdom. When we can bring patience to the fact that this is just what's being known, this is what's here right now, no rush, there's no rush, there's no rush, there is no rush to get anywhere. Some of us feel like our practice should be in a different place by now. Okay, I've been here for, what day is it? Day three. (laughs) Day three? How long have we been here? (laughs) Something like that. It should be a lot better by now. I should be settled. This is not going the way I had envisioned it. Or maybe you're looking at your practice over a lifetime I thought I'd be so much farther along than I am. Here I am stuck in restlessness again. I thought I was over this. Patience. There's no rush. There's nowhere to go. This is it. That restlessness, that's it. That is your practice. That is the edge to awakening right there if you can stay with it. And then finally, there's doubt. Doubt is so tricky. Doubt's very um, characteristic is that it's hard to see it. It's hard to even know that it's there. The Buddha talks about all of these hindrances uh, using simile. And he uses similes, um, he uses water uh, in a vessel or in a bowl. Um, and each hindrance, he talks about the water and how it's uh, hard to see through it. And so with uh, aversion, I think it's bubbling, scolding water. And um, I'm trying to think, I think maybe uh, sloth and torpor, there's, there's a moss or a, a slime that's kind of on the top of it. And so there's all these different ways in which you can't see through. Greed, I think, is different dyes that are distracting and you can't see through uh, the water. So that's all interesting, I guess, but what I love the most is his simile for doubt, which is not only uh, is the water not clear, you're not able to see through, but that, that vessel of water is in a dark room You don't even know it's there. And doubt is just like that. We get stuck in the story of doubt. I can't do this. Something's not quite right. I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, This isn't working. This isn't for me. Everyone else is doing better than I am. The teachers don't like me. You know, we get stuck in the stories of doubt not realizing that the only thing that's happening really is that we're stuck in doubt, is that we're having a doubt hindrance attack. It's often not until someone points it out even, I think you're experiencing doubt, that we realize, oh, you're right, maybe that's what it is. I had uh, a very impactful experience on retreat many years ago I was sitting a month long on the East Coast at the Forest Refuge. And 
I was having what some call a dukkha retreat, <laughs> where um, all the hindrances seemed to be arising, but especially aversion. I was adverse to everything, every single thing. I couldn't stand it. And this is this beautiful, very peaceful retreat center in the woods. Um, uh, the weather was beautiful. There was, it was a little bit cold. And I remember the first day getting there, there was a little bit of snow on the ground, uh, which was gorgeous. But by day two, I hated it. <laughs> by day three, there was just this little clump of snow left, and I absolutely hated it. I didn't like my room. I didn't like the other yogis. I didn't like the food. I didn't like the teachings. I didn't like one of the teachers very much. It was just, and I was watching it. I had been practicing long enough that I knew, okay, this is aversion. But it was so intense, and I was throwing everything I had at it, all my tools of how to work with aversion, and nothing was working, and I was just being with it and trying to be patient. And um, two weeks of this, uh, I, was, I thought I was going, you know, kind of batty. And um, I went into an interview, and I was just, I, I was ready to give up. And um, it was an interview with the teacher I didn't particularly like, which was not about her. <laughs> She's a wonderful person and a great teacher, but I just, uh, I just didn't like her because of that was the, the, you know, the lens I was looking through. So I sat down with her, and I'm telling her, you know, I just don't have any faith anymore in this. I just don't think I can do this anymore. I'll, you know, there's something not right. I just, I probably should just leave and da-da-da-da. And at the end, she said, you know, Kate, I, I think you're just experiencing doubt. And I said, no, I don't think so. <laughs> and I left. <laughs> and I went into my walking meditation and I was just kind of grumpily walking along because I was hating walking meditation at that time and doing my back and forth and back and forth. And all of a sudden, it just popped in my head out of nowhere. Is this doubt? And the moment I asked the question, the answer, it came deep in my gut and came up like a like a regurgitation, yes, this is doubt. I'm doubting the teachers, I'm doubting the teachings, the path, this place, myself, my life, everything. And it just went on and on and on. And, and I was crying and, and just almost overwhelmed by it, but also relieved. Oh, it's just doubt. It's just doubt. None of this is real. It's just doubt. So I did apologize to that teacher. And the rest of the retreat went incredibly well <laughs> as far as, you know, the aversion actually went. So interesting how uh, sometimes these hindrances layer up on each other and we think we're working with one, but actually there's something else underneath it. All of that doubt, fueling all of that aversion that whole time. So hopefully you don't have to take two weeks to uh, discover some of these hindrances. Hopefully these are, this is a story that um, might uh, allow you to ask the questions. Is this doubt? Is this aversion? Is this desire? Is this sloth and torpor? Is this restlessness? Yes. Oh, it's just this. It's just this. When it's just a hindrance, it's not really a hindrance anymore. It's not really a problem anymore. So you can be experiencing these mind states. Maybe you're not free from them, but they just don't have the hold that they did before. Your sense of self isn't so entangled in in their creation anymore. And then they don't have the fuel 
to continue. They won't last as long as they would if you'd continue to fuel them. It's pretty uh, magical how all this stuff works in the end. So these are just a few of the ways in which um, dukkha arises in our experience. You know, one that I haven't mentioned um, directly, I guess I did mention it, but not as a hindrance, but it certainly is a hindrance, is our fear. It doesn't show up on the classical list of hindrances. Maybe it's because it's entangled in all of them. We often can find just a little bit of fear fueling all of these hindrances if we look really closely. And then under that is just our lack of understanding. Just not seeing how things really are. We're just entangled in it. And so while we're here, we're just slowly pulling the pieces apart. But we can only do that if we come face to face with that dukkha. If we learn how to turn towards it instead of trying to get rid of it. Of course we want the blissed out states. Of course we want the ease and the relaxation. I mean, that is what we're going for. But we can't just go there. To deny this other part of being alive um, just spins us out into more delusion and greed and hatred. We have to turn towards the difficult and stay steady with it, to really be with it, get to know it, befriend it, in order to have the true happiness that we really do desire, that true relaxation, that deep rest in the mind and in the heart, the opening of the heart that we wish for, the healing that we want. We can't go around it. We can't just plow through it either. It's that steadiness, that ability to be with. So gentle, so kind. That's what we're doing. That is the practice. I've probably used this particular poem too many times this year. I feel like this has been my go-to this past year. This is Jennifer Wellwood, Unconditional. Willing to experience aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fear, I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my loss, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. Each condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me and becomes itself transformed into its radiant jewel-like essence. I bow to the one who has made it so, who has crafted this master game to play it is purest delight, delight, to honor its form, true devotion. You can hear the acceptance in that, can't you? That acceptance, that attitude of allow. So much of what we're doing is not only recognizing what's here, but turning towards this uh, attitude in the mind and in the heart that can allow. See what my body just did? (laughs) It's like that. It goes from this bracing, figure it out, make it better, to... uh, 
Okay. I see you, anger. Let's be with this. Or I see you, sadness. What do you have to tell me? I see you, relentless, judgmental mind. So much hurt in there. You need care and attention. This attitude of allow. When we take these postures, that's part of the posture. It's part of why we sit in this way. It puts our body into this state of recognition of ah, surrender, let go, allow. And then from there, life gets so much more interesting. It's so much more fascinating when we can observe it from this place. All the little details that before maybe we missed because we were protecting ourselves, putting up all of our armor in our walls. When we can do this, it's just incredible. To be human is really amazing if we're paying attention. And so we investigate and we see what's really there. What is this doubt? What is this restlessness? Wow. It's my son's favorite word. Wow. (laughs) So it's becoming my internal mantra. (laughs) For him, it's, you know, toy trains and apparently tight sparkly pants at (laughs) H&M. Wow. (laughs) His whole world is wow. And for us, if we can just relax, allow, wow. That's what's going on in there. That is something. And then from there, we move into letting go. Not hanging on to the wow. That in itself can be its own little hook. It's so subtle. But if we hang on to any of it, if we identify with any of it, oh, now I'm getting somewhere. Ooh, look at my practice now. I'm doing just what she told me to do. (laughs) No, we can just let go a little bit more. Relax into that allow even deeper. It's not me, it's not you. This is universe just moving through us, moving through the awareness, this big spacious awareness that we're all just sitting in right now. And life is just moving through it. And we get to see it. It's one of the great gifts of being born in this human form is we can know that this is all happening. We have a mind that drives us nuts, but also has the capacity to know itself and to know this body and to know this life. And so we can just allow it to be known. Nothing else needed to be added. This is where the deep relaxation, a deep sense of contentment and happiness can come from. Maybe I'll just stop there. We can just close our eyes and allow the words also to pass through and settle.
May the gifts of the Dharma touch all beings everywhere. May all beings be free. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.